Good morning. In today's headlines, North Korea's communist leader Kim Jong-un visits Russia. Find out more about the arms deal U.S. officials expect out of meetings with Russian President Vladimir Putin. A death toll nearing 3,000 and continued rescue efforts. We have the latest on the quake in Morocco and why it was so deadly. Nearly 200,000 illegal border crossers were released into the U.S. without an accurate address to track them down. We have details from a new watchdog report. Parents of children who identify as transgender share the tough roads they've traveled. We have more on a recently published book detailing their struggles. A successful rescue mission, American caver Mark Dickey was pulled from a cave in Turkey after a nine-day ordeal. Hear his response. A group in New Hampshire is helping seniors combat their loneliness. Learn more about a dine-out program that brings people together. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning from me. Also, I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Tuesday, September 12th. Evelyn, it's so good that the countries in Europe and the Middle East are also helping the people of Morocco. Yeah, especially because the rescuers weren't able to uh, get to some of the villagers in the more remote areas yet. Oh, and those were the hardest hit areas too. And we're glad you're here and we're going to start off with our top news. Right, topping the news today, President Biden commemorated 9-11 in Alaska yesterday on his way back from the G20 summit in India and a short trip to Vietnam. The president spoke at a military base in Anchorage about the importance of protecting democracy. Here's President Biden yesterday. I join you on this solemn day to renew our sacred vow. Never forget the soul of America is the fortitude we found in the fear of that terrible September day, the purpose we found in our pain, the light we found in our darkest hour. Let us remember who we are as a nation. We never forget. We're never afraid. We endure. We overcome. We are the United States of America. Biden faced criticism from some Republicans for not taking part in the ceremonies in New York and at the Pentagon. Former Vice President Mike Pence said he was very disappointed that Biden wasn't at ground zero and that the leader of the country has the ability to pay a debt of gratitude. Presidential candidates Vivek Ramaswamy and Governor Ron DeSantis were at ground zero yesterday, along with Vice President Kamala Harris and other members of Congress. DeSantis met with victims' families and called for transparency and accountability. He asked Biden in a statement to publicly commit to declassifying any U.S. intelligence documents related to the attacks. Former President Trump released a brief video statement about the attacks honoring first responders. The U.S. is renewing warnings to North Korea not to sell arms to Russia. The leader of the communist country, Kim Jong-un, arrived in Russia today. He's expected to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin to talk about buying ammunition for Russia's reserves. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the visit. Kim Jong-un's heavily armored private train arrived in Russia Tuesday with an entourage of military officials in charge of nuclear-capable weapons and munitions factories, as well as the country's foreign minister and economic officials. Moscow and Pyongyang deny accusations they would be conducting arms deals. The Kremlin says talks will focus on bilateral ties. The White House says Russia wants to buy millions of artillery shells and rockets from North Korea and warned against it. 
The communist-led country has been under international sanctions over its nuclear weapons program for years. A potential Putin-Kim meeting expected this week could lead to Pyongyang obtaining the technology needed to make weapons it was barred from accessing for two decades. It's also likely to ask for money and shipments of food and energy. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan warned last week that North Korea will pay a price in the international community if it strikes an arms deal with Russia. And we will continue to call it out and we will continue to call on North Korea to abide by its public commitments not to supply weapons to Russia that will end up killing Ukrainians. South Korea's spy agency warned last month of growing military cooperation and a possible transfer of Russia's core nuclear and missile technology. It says Russia's defense minister Sergei Shoigu likely proposed a three-way naval drill involving China. Shoigu visited North Korea in July in an attempt to convince it to sell artillery ammunition. He said during the visit joint military drills between Russia and North Korea were being discussed. Washington renewed its warnings against a potential arms deal on Monday and urged the North to abide by its promise not to provide or sell weapons to Russia. Putin is expected to arrive in Vladivostok, a possible meeting location on Tuesday. A meeting time with Kim has not yet been announced. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And we will have more analysis on this in a sh little bit, so stay tuned for that in the program. Um, a controversial money for prisoner swap between the U.S. and Iran is now moving forward. Republicans are criticizing the deal, saying it will boost the Iranian economy and fund terrorism. The deal releases $6 billion in frozen assets being held in South Korea in exchange for the release of five American citizens. The deal also includes the release of five unnamed Iranians jailed in the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the money will be transferred to restricted accounts in Qatar where the funds will be available only for humanitarian trade. Some lawmakers have raised concerns that the deal would encourage hostile nations to take more Americans hostage in the future. It's expected the detainees will be released as early as next week. More updates on the D.C. special counsel prosecution of former President Trump. Trump is now asking Judge Tanya Chutkin to recuse herself from the case against him. In a new court filing on Monday, Trump pointed to comments Chutkin made in cases involving January 6th defendants. He argued she doesn't appear entirely impartial. Chutkin, in response, has asked for the Justice Department prosecutor's point of view in a filing due Thursday. Chutkin is a President Obama appointee randomly assigned to Trump's case. She has long been outspoken about the Capitol breach. She calls it an assault on American democracy and has repeatedly exceeded what prosecutors requested for prison sentences. Coming up, nearly 200,000 illegal border crossers were released into the U.S. without an accurate address to track them down. We have details from a new watchdog report. And an international team of rescuers successfully saved a man stuck deep down a cave in Turkey. That story and more after the break. Welcome back. Stay inside and lock your doors. That's what police are telling nearby residents. The convicted killer who escaped from a Pennsylvania prison nearly two weeks ago was spotted again last night. And officials now say he is armed with a weapon. 
The latest sighting of Danilo Calvacante brings a heightened sense of danger. The fugitive was spotted in Chester County's South Coventry Township, about 20 miles north of the prison he escaped from. Pennsylvania State Police later said they were pursuing Calvacante in the South Coventry Township and that he is armed with a weapon. The Post did not say how they knew he was armed or what kind of weapon he had. Calvacante was being held at Chester County Prison following his conviction last month of first-degree murder for the killing of his former girlfriend. He escaped from custody August 31st, launching the days-long manhunt. Turning our attention now to the illegal immigration crisis, many illegal border crossers were released into the U.S. without an accurate address to track them down. This is what a new watchdog report found. The Biden administration doesn't have information to locate over 100,000 illegal immigrants released into the U.S. That's according to a report released Monday by the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General. The DHS released more than 1.3 million illegal immigrants under federal law into the U.S. from March 2021 through August 2022. DHS workers are required to identify an address prior to releasing each immigrant. The addresses help in situations when ICE officers need to track down fugitive illegal immigrants. The DHS Inspector General reviewed over 980,000 records and found Border Patrol had not obtained an address or had obtained an invalid address for more than 177,000 released illegal immigrants. That included illegal immigrants with undeliverable addresses and addresses at entities such as charities or other government agencies. Some addresses were used repeatedly. A full 80% of the reviewed addresses were used at least twice over the 18-month period. More than 780 addresses were used over 20 times. The watchdog made several recommendations to the DHS, such as creating a plan for when illegal immigrants do not have a valid U.S. address. The inspector general concluded in the report, ICE must be able to locate migrants to enforce immigration laws, including to arrest or remove individuals who are considered potential threats to national security. Reviews are in for New Mexico Governor Grisham gun, Grisham's gun-carrying ban, and they haven't been too positive. Entities Daniel Monahan has more on the move, which is drawing rebuke from both sides of the political aisle. The ban, issued under an emergency public health order, applies to Albuquerque and its surrounding county. The Democrat sheriff in New Mexico's largest metro area, John Allen, says the sheriff's office will not enforce the gun carry ban. This order will not do anything to curb gun violence other than punish law-abiding citizens from their constitutional right to self-defense. Allen added that criminals don't follow the law or a public health order. Democrat District Attorney Sam Bregman joined Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller and Police Chief Harold Medina, saying they too would not enforce it. A gun rights group filed a federal lawsuit within 24 hours, seeking an immediate court order to block the order from taking effect. Republican state lawmakers have also proposed initiating impeachment proceedings against the governor. Gun shop owner Mark Abramson thinks the ban misses the mark. There's no connection between law-abiding citizens carrying a gun for their own protection, whether open or concealed lawfully, uh, and the kind of shooting incidents that we've seen in New Mexico. Customer Mike Leathers wonders how taking law-abiding citizens off the street with their firearms prevents gun violence. Leathers says guns act as a deterrent, 
usually stopping crime without being fired. The other deterrent used to be prosecution and prison. Well, she took that deterrent away. Okay, we don't prosecute criminals anymore. We don't lock them up in prison anymore. She created the problem, and now she's punishing us for the problem that she created. Grisham says she was compelled to issue her order following recent shootings, including the death of an 11-year-old boy outside a minor league baseball stadium last week, the gunfire death of a five-year-old girl who was asleep in a motorhome, and an August shooting death in Taos County of a 13-year-old girl. New Mexico was among five states with the highest rates of gun-related killings in 2021. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. More coverage coming up. Kim Jong-un arrives in Russia ahead of a closely watched summit with Vladimir Putin. What more is behind the meeting? An expert weighs in. And as the death toll rises from Morocco's lethal earthquake, we take a look at what contributed to the high number of fatalities. That's after the break. Good to have you back. Kim Jong-un is in Russia to meet with President Vladimir Putin. They plan on discussing a possible arms deal, but what is the real significance of King's, Kim's rare appearance outside of North Korea? Joining us now is Grant Newsham, retired Marine Colonel and Senior Fellow at the Center for Security Policy. Good morning, Grant. It's great to have you. Now, first, let's uh, talk about the arms deal we have, possible arms deals we have heard about. First, how are North Korea's weapons capability and technology? How important could that be for Russia? Well, North Korea won't feed its people, but it's pretty good with some of the basic weaponry that it makes. It's got plenty of artillery shells, missiles, small arms, ammunition, and Russia can use all of that. Uh, they've been burning through it uh, fast since this war in Ukraine started. They can't make enough of their own. North Korea has it. Russia wants it. And it's important to remember that uh, when North Korea gives weaponry and uh, ammunition uh, arms to Russia, that it's believed that China uh, restocks North Korea's arsenals. Uh, this isn't actually something new. It appears to have been going on for quite some time. Mm, that's a good point there. Now, but looking at the other side from North Korea, what are they, what is Kim Jong-un looking for? How is he looking to advance North Korea's interests? Well, North North Korea, Kim, that's who matters. What he wants really is nuclear and missile development. So he's hoping to get from the Russians technology, know-how, things that help him improve his nuclear capabilities, uh, his missile delivery uh, capabilities, particularly so he can shrink the size of his nuclear warheads and put them on missiles. Also, he wants uh, to have access to fuel in particular, some food. Uh, and he also wants the Russians and the Chinese uh, to uh, provide him political cover uh, at the United Nations and elsewhere, uh, and to make sure that sanctions are not enforced against North Korea as they should be. And we want to talk about that a little bit more later on, but some are saying um, that turning to North Korea shows the desperation of Putin. Uh, General Milley, for instance, he described Putin as having a tin cup in hand. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, Putin's in trouble, uh, but that isn't anything to crow about. Uh, remember how often people said that, well, the Taliban are desperate. 
uh, because they had done some uh, outrage, had launched some attack, we just said, uh, well, that shows how desperate they are. Well, they're saying the same thing here, uh, that Putin is so desperate he has to go to North Korea. Well, yeah, he may be in some trouble, but North Korea is a good source of supply, and North Korea has something he wants, Russia has something North Korea wants. So just because two uh, difficult regimes that are in difficult circumstances are cooperating, that's nothing to laugh about. They can still cause plenty of trouble. Uh, this is a meeting of the minds here, and always remember that China is involved in it as well. It's not just Russia and North Korea. Uh, so General Milley, uh, he doesn't exactly have a track record of uh, success. Mm. Well, so to wrap things up here, the bottom line, what is your estimate? How worried should we be here? Oh, I'd be very worried about this. Uh, Russia is not, as I said, is not going to, say, back down, not going to seek negotiations. It is going all out uh, in Ukraine, and its objectives, as they've said, are Europe. Now, the British understand this. I'm not sure Washington, D.C. Washington, does, and there's some other countries in Europe that do as well. The Germans don't appear to, um, and China as well. They are not backing down. Their objectives are regional domination, global domination, and to bring the United States down more than a few notches. So we need to be very worried uh, and not let, our, not let our guard down, but also build our defenses back up. Uh, and also to stop funding the Chinese would be a good start. Right, certainly a concerning outlook here, but thank you so much for your analysis. Grant Newsham, I appreciate it as always. Well, thank you very much. More international news. Over 2,800 is the latest death toll in the deadly Morocco earthquake. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the aftermath. At least 2,500 people are injured. As for the missing, that is unknown. With much of the quake zone in hard-to-reach areas, authorities have not issued any estimates. Search and rescue efforts are ongoing. Emergency responders here attack the rubble with a pickaxe. The sun bakes rescuers from above as they heave and haul the earth below them, hoping to find life, but also tasked with pulling out the dead. Rescuers here savor a rare moment of joy as a survivor is pulled from what could have been a rocky crypt. In the village of Tinmel, almost every house was pulverized and the entire community has been left homeless. Seismologist Richard Walker says the large population housed in vulnerable buildings played a key role in the earthquake's deadliness. Construction using you know, unreinforced masonry, the, the, the kind of more rural styles that that sadly are not very strong when earthquakes hit. The late hour of the disaster, with many at home asleep, also contributed. Remy Bosu of the European Mediterranean Seismological Center says clearing the rubble is a difficult task. The risk of the buildings collapsing is real, a safety risk rescuers must be wary of. And this is also why the advice is always not to go back in houses which have been weakened by, by the main shock because they may collapse during aftershocks. The epicenter of the quake was about 45 miles southwest of Marrakesh, where some historical buildings in the old city, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, were damaged. Director of the UNESCO World Heritage Center, Lazare Asamo, says they have already sent a mission to assess the extent of the destruction. Not only on the World Heritage Site of Marrakesh itself, but also on the other important uh, cultural heritage uh, sites 
in the affected uh, region. Morocco has accepted offers of aid from Spain and Britain. Both have sent search and rescue specialists with sniffer dogs. The UAE and Qatar have also sent help. The Moroccan government says it might accept relief offers from other countries later. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And now we're heading over to our reporter Malcolm Hudson in the UK for some short headlines from around the world. Good morning, Evelyn and Kevin. Rescue teams in eastern Libya have retrieved hundreds of bodies from the rubble in the coastal city that has been inundated by devastating floods caused by Mediterranean storm Daniel. Authorities estimate as many as 2,000 people are believed dead in the city of Derna. Many are thought to have been carried away after two upstream dams burst. Taiwan said it spotted 22 Chinese military aircraft and 20 vessels near the island over the last 24 hours. Over the weekend, US and Canadian warships sailed through the Taiwan Strait in a challenge to China's sweeping territorial claims. Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak yesterday accused Russia of targeting a civilian cargo ship at port in the Black Sea in August. It's the first time an official has commented on a ship being targeted since Ukraine began to allow vessels stranded in Odessa port to sail after the collapse of the grain deal. Israel's Supreme Court began hearing arguments against the bid by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government to curb the court's powers. Judges convened to hear appeals by watchdog groups against a judicial amendment passed in July by Netanyahu's coalition. It's part of a judicial overhaul that has sparked months of protests. In a small town in Portugal, two holding tanks burst, spilling 600,000 gallons of red wine onto the streets, triggering an environmental alert. Officials said there was enough wine to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and they're investigating the cause of the incident. That's all from me. Back to you both. Thank you very much. An American caver was successfully rescued after spending nine days trapped underground. The international team of 190 rescuers included doctors, paramedics, and experienced cavers. Here's the story. It's been one hell of a crazy, crazy adventure. American caver Mark Dickey's nine-day ordeal has ended with a successful rescue. After falling ill 3,000 feet down in a Turkish cave, he was too weak to return to the top on his own. A massive international rescue team was mobilized to save him in what were incredibly difficult circumstances. Rescuers described the challenges they faced in getting him back to the surface. This is quite a difficult cave because uh, there are some small narrow passages and uh, the shafts are quite much so it's not, not the easiest cave to uh, traverse. Cavers are a tight-knit group, and in this case, were Dickey's only hope for a rescue. Mark Dickey is also feeling the happiness after the grueling ordeal ended well for him. It is amazing to be above ground again. I was underground for far longer than ever expected with an, with an unexpected medical issue. Um, I want to immediately thank um, Afad, Rajib, Shalib, the, the support of the 
Turkish government saved my life, literally no questions asked. Dickey was there to map out a cave in Turkey when the gastrointestinal bleeding started. Doctors reported his health as very good. We're heading to break now. That's right. Coming up, parents of children who identify as transgender share their tough roads they've traveled. We have more on a recently published book detailing their struggles after the short break. Welcome back. New York City is responding to the illegal immigrant crisis with drastic cost-cutting measures. The city plans on cutting overtime pay for police, firefighters, correction officers, and sanitation workers to help pay for the massive influx of illegal border crossers. Mayor Adams ordered those groups to create an overtime pay reduction plan and track its progress monthly. Police unions say the plan will reduce the number of cops on patrol and to make the city more dangerous. The Adams plan also creates a hiring freeze. The cost-slashing move comes after Adams recently described the flow of migrants into the city as a financial tsunami. He has said that the migrant crisis will, quote, destroy the city. Adams said New York City can't manage 10,000 people a month with no end in sight. A technicality in Florida law could be partly responsible for the Jacksonville shooter's ability to obtain firearms legally. The law says if a person is taken into police custody for being a danger to themselves or others and gets a mental health examination but does not stay for treatment, that doesn't show up on a background check. And that's exactly what happened with shooter Ryan Palmetter. He was committed for threatening to take his own life about six years ago. We're going to learn more from the head of a gun rights organization about how Florida laws failed to prevent this tragedy. And a warning, the following story has graphic content. Joining me now is Luis Valdez, the national spokesman and Florida State Director for Gun Owners of America. Luis, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me on the air. Is there a way to craft gun control laws that can distinguish responsible citizens from potential threats so we can avoid tragedies like the one that happened in Jacksonville? Very much so. It's called repealing gun control laws because gun control laws have been an abject failure and in no way have prevented wanton criminals from being criminals. Florida currently has on the books red flag laws, mandatory three-day waiting periods, under 21 purchase bans, gun-free zones, mandatory backgrounds when firearms are purchased at dealers. And guess what? None of that stopped this. Other states like New York and California are even more draconian, and they still have crime happening. The truth of the matter is, is that the shooter was a mentally deranged individual that was Baker-acted when he was a teenager, that was on a number of antipsychotic medication, who stopped taking that medication and was basically another another um, thing that was swept under the rug. We have a mental health crisis. We don't have a gun violence crime crisis. It's a mental health crisis. And the Jacksonville County Sheriff uh, himself, T.K. Waters, said it best. This isn't a gun problem. This is a bad guy problem. I could take my gun, put it on a table, and it ain't going to do anything until a bad guy picks it up. So why did the Florida law fail to prevent this tragedy? 
The Florida law failed to prevent this tragedy because you can't prevent bad people from being bad. That's the honest truth. Murder has been illegal since the era of Hammurabi. And guess what? People still commit it. Bad people break the law. That is the honest truth. And as a former law enforcement officer, here's the real truth. When seconds count, I was minutes to an hour away. Police are reactionary. We show up after the fact to go after the perpetrator to get justice served. But if you want to prevent crime, that is on you. You have to protect yourself. You have to be your own first responder. And in this case, with this shooter, he is a repeat of what we saw in Buffalo, New York, and New Zealand. He was a deranged individual that was a recluse that was on multiple antipsychotic medications and that basically was a ticking time bomb. Again, we have a mental health crisis. If you want to solve this problem, let's m publicly fund mental health facilities and stop making it a uh, social stigma for people to get mental health counseling and treatment. So this shooter bought his guns legally. Now, wouldn't there be provisions in place that would take a look at his situation and prevent him from obtaining firearms? Again, the laws on the books in no way stopped it. And in other states, they even have more restrictive laws and it wouldn't have stopped it. Because guess what? You cannot restrict the rights of law-abiding individuals. If a person is a threat to society, taking guns away from them doesn't stop that threat. They could commit one act of violence with a vehicle, with a gallon of gasoline and a book of matches, with a hammer. As we saw in Wisconsin, someone used an SUV and they drove through a crowd at a Christmas Day parade. But again, if you want to stop this threat, take the crazy people off the streets. Well, Luis Valdez, I appreciate your time at Gun Owners for America. Thank you. Thank you very much. Moving into some cultural issues now, perhaps it's a story you've heard before. A vulnerable kid, maybe with emotional or physical discomfort, believes the solution to their struggles lies in adopting an opposite sex identity. A book has now been released compiling the stories of the parents of such kids and the trials they experienced. It's called Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans, Tales from the Home Front in the Fight to Save Our Kids. And today's Daniel Monahan spoke with three of the parents Two have their faces obscured due to ongoing issues with their children. For Ellie, one of the most disturbing things was the medical community. She says there was basically no assessment before medicating. My child had a one-hour Zoom conference, Zoom call with a social worker, and um, then was put on blockers. The concerned mom says clinicians overloaded her with one-sided information. They didn't talk about the safety of this stuff or the efficacy at all. Just, you know, really confusing that they would expect you to medicalize your child based on such shoddy evidence. And gave inadequate answers to her questions on criteria when trying to convince her to move forward with hormones for her son, hormones she believes would have sterilized him. She said, we don't have criteria. We just kind of get a sense of it. No criteria for, for medical treatments that will sterilize, you know, kids who have a range of problems, you know, some psychological problems, some neurodevelopmental problems, you know, kids on the autism spectrum are largely overrepresented by this patient population. So to not have any criteria, you know, that's an abomination. That's a, a you know, 
a human rights violation. Ellie says her son's mental state dramatically worsened while on blockers. Doctors recommended mood stabilizers. Despite her deepening fears and concerns for her son, she says the medical team kept supporting him to medically transition. When you triangulate like that and you turn children against their parents, um, it blows up your household. It is such a destructive force. Ellie eventually succeeded in getting her teen son off the blockers, but he soon got hold of illegal estrogen. It shocked her to find out that her son's pediatrician taught him to inject it. Jennifer's daughter began identifying as trans in fifth grade. The school was socially transitioning her without our consent or knowledge. That's a typical thing that happens, um, you know, that parents are assumed to be non-trustworthy without any evidence. That's a theme Jennifer was to encounter multiple times. Adults she thought she could trust seemingly working against her. She gives the example of a therapist who informed her that her daughter was using male pronouns and a new male name. The therapist wanted to help her daughter come out as a boy. It never occurred to me that adults would be reinforcing this stuff, um, especially behind our backs. Jennifer says the laws about so-called transgender kids in states like Washington, Oregon, and California are a big problem. They are saying that you can't question a child who says they're the opposite sex. You can't question why they might feel that way or that's conversion therapy. Um, and the therapist can then lose their license. Jennifer's daughter no longer identifies as trans. Getting her out of the school was the first step. She discusses what else helps. Connecting with family, having those strong family bonds um, reinforced uh, are the things that I have seen um, parents do that are able to pull their kids out of this. Josie says one of her son's teachers was actively trying to help him move out of her house once he identified as trans. She originally thought the therapist was on her side until she overheard a discussion between her and her son. The therapist told my son that I was a anti-trans, I was anti-trans and I was trying to find anything anti-trans, which I thought, who does that? Who? So it, it felt like every adult in his life was putting a wedge between us. Josie reads a passage from the book on the cornered feelings parents encounter in her situation. You are the parent after all charged with the most important job of your lifetime, raising your child to be a healthy, responsible adult. Now you can't do that. You know in your head that this is wrong, but everyone around you tells you that you must affirm. The newly released Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans, Tales from the Homefront in the Fight to Save Our Kids, features 75 essays from parents across the political, religious, and geographical spectrum. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. I think one of the parents made such a good point that was not on my radar yet, uh, which was that, what about kids on an autism spectrum? Most of them, I, I just Googled, it's like, I think transgender kids are six times more likely to have autism. Do we know what kind of effect autism has on their decision-making? I don't know if that's been um, 
adequately, like if it has been studied, but. Yeah, and there are just so many underlying factors that need to be taken into account. And even the NIH says that women who transition or supposedly transition, they can have more risks of breast cancer and even fractures when they get older. And it is really great that, you know, she was saying that she didn't have the right information going into this, and now she wrote a book so that other people could be informed. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's right. Yeah. And coming up, Google heading to court in a landmark antitrust trial. What's at stake, and why is the tech giant in the crosshairs? NTD Business host Don Ma has the latest. And still to come, also a dangerous challenge popular on social media has killed one teenager, and now the family is trying to sue the company. We speak to an attorney to see who could be held accountable. Welcome back. Google will be in court today in Washington, D.C. It's the search engine dominance as at the center of potentially the biggest U.S. antitrust trial in decades. Here to discuss this is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, thanks for coming on to discuss this really big news. Yeah, yeah, I know, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so can you give us the details? What is the U.S. accusing Google of? All right, to put it simply, the U.S. is accusing Google of unlawfully stifling competition. Um, so the company is being accused of paying wireless carriers and smartphone makers billions of dollars, by the way, to make Google search the default or sometimes even the only option on products uh, used by millions of consumers. So basically, regulators are alleging Google has rigged the market in its favor. Uh, but, you know, of course, Google denies that. It, it says uh, people use its services simply because they believe it's the best and not for because uh, Google has restricted competition or anything like that. Uh, Google actually argues that currently it faces a wide range of competition. Um, that's from search engines like Microsoft Bing, uh, DuckDuckGo, and even websites like Amazon and Yelp. Um, so as you mentioned, the case is widely seen as one of the biggest challenges uh, to tech industry power in 25 years. Um, this legal showdown, it could potentially shape one of the Internet's most dominant plat platforms. And the trial is going to last 10 weeks, Kevin. Yeah, that's a big one. And Google is going to have a lot of questions to answer here. So what's at stake here for the search giant? Yeah, that's really important here. So what's at stake is uh, how Google distributes its search engine to users. The U.S. is actually not seeking a monetary penalty per se, but the government said uh, in its lawsuit that the court could potentially break up the company as a solution. Now think about that. That would be huge, but this would be an extreme outcome. Um, a ruling against, company, uh, against Google could actually affect companies um, like Apple because uh, Google has actually paid uh, Apple a lot uh, to you know use its Google, uh, Google search engine on its phone as a default option. Uh, so th those are some of the things that are at stake and presiding over the case is U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta who also recently presided over the trial of Peter Navarro. Yeah, and Google is just such a powerhouse. I mean, it even has influence over our elections touching into democracy here. So what else do you have for us, Don? Sure. Uh, just one quick update. Um, nearly one million workers in California are in line for a big pay raise, it seems like. Under two newly proposed bills, uh, the minimum wage for fast food workers would soon reach $20 per hour, a $5 jump from current levels. 
And for healthcare workers, the amount will hit $25 per hour over the next decade. The changes come after summer-long union strikes in the entertainment and hospitality industries. Both uh, proposals are pending in the state legislature. Yeah, that's it. Well, it seems like they got what they wanted there. Well, Don, host of NTD Business, it was great talking to you. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Chances are you've heard of the One Chip Challenge. Maker Paki has now pulled the product from store shelves after a teen died after trying the challenge. The family now blames the company for the death. The challenge has become popular on social media with videos of people eating the chip and then getting sick or even hospitalized. That's right, and there have been many hazardous trends before this one. So who is responsible and what should be done? I spoke to an attorney to find out. Joining me now is Lynn McCraw. He is the CEO and managing partner of McCraw Law Group. It's good to have you, Lynn. Now, there are all these reports that kids got physically sick from this one chip challenge, and a family in Massachusetts even claims that their son died from it. So now it sounds really dangerous. The packaging does have a warning label on it, though, that says it's just for adults, among other things. Now, would that free them from any liability? Uh, no. To the contrary, what that oh, the only thing that's going to do is show that they knew how dangerous this particular substance was or potentially was. It's much like uh, selling kids selling cigarettes to kids by using cartoon characters, right? Uh, I understand that in this particular situation that they were that the company was behind the the whole challenge, the one chip challenge. So in that way, what they've done is created a an incentive particularly for young people who aren't going to know necessarily how dangerous this particular substance may or may not be. Uh, a lot, at least I understand on that particular case in Massachusetts, is going to depend upon the autopsy. But if the autopsy comes back and it's poisoned from, from this particular, uh, these particular types of peppers, I, I suspect this company is going to have a real problem on their hands. When you say real problem, what would they be looking at? Well, to, to begin with, probably a products liability action. Uh, you can you can uh, sue under products liability if an injury caused uh, if an injury is caused by a product and that product is unreasonably dangerous for its intended use. That that's one theory. Another theory would be that it was marketed improperly. So you could have a dangerous product that that uh, otherwise might not be liable in products. But if you market it improperly, you market it the way it shouldn't be marketed, and as a result, people are hurt, they may be able to maintain an action. We see that happening, for instance, with the drug companies, with, uh, with OxyContin, uh, the way it was, it was marketed. That's, that's a, a big issue right now on products liability. I suspect this company could have a similar issue if they can link the causation here uh, to, of the death and of the injuries to this particular product. Right now, when it comes to marketing, there is another um, factor that comes into play, which is social media. Now, what role do you see them play in this? Should they be held responsible as well? Well, that's a, that's an emerging area of law right now. There, there, there are right now cases in, in which uh, social media companies, they're trying to, to drag them to court and say, look, you are part of the process of getting this dangerous product, in, in this case, from point A to point B, in which it hurts people, and therefore you should be held responsible. I think that's a little less clear as to whether or not that's going to be successful. But I do suspect that the companies that are that are doing this, and it's particularly if they're doing things like sponsoring these, these challenges, 
they are they are actually their call to action is for young people that they know are should not be taking these particular products. They have a very very big problem. Uh, I would not say that the social media companies are going to be off the hook. Again, it's a developing area of law. I can't tell you which way it's going to go on that. Now, bottom line here, who do you think um, will be or should be held responsible for these challenges that go wrong? If if they're able to link the, the, the death and injuries to this particular product, the manufacturer of the product is going to be held responsible. That's, that, that's what I suspect will happen. All right. Thank you so much, Lynn McCraw. I really appreciate your insights on this. Thank you, ma'am. Well, we're going to have to see what the outcome is, but it is a good thing that this product was pulled from the stores, at least in some areas, after the That's fact. Right. And maybe they didn't re exactly know the effects of it, but, you know, sometimes there is a lot of those financial incentives that might not necessarily end up favorably for the consumer. So it comes down to business ethics, I guess. Right. Yeah. And maybe there's a way to educate children so they can better protect themselves, mm -hmm. even if there are some questionable marketing practices. Right. All right, and heading into our next break, New Hampshire seniors are benefiting from a program that helps them fight loneliness and promotes healthier eating. That story after this short break. Good to have you back. A recent Surgeon General's report says loneliness has a negative impact on health, especially for senior citizens. The report says those experiencing a lack of social connection face a risk similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. A New Hampshire Meals on Wheels program is doing their best to make sure seniors there won't face that problem. Here's the story. Loneliness isn't healthy for anyone, especially America's elderly. A New Hampshire Meals on Wheels program for senior citizens aims to combat the issue with a new dine-out program. We created this dine-out opportunity in New Hampshire with people 60 and older in mind. Uh, right now, since the pandemic, isolation of people 60 and older has gone up an unprecedented amount, 200%, and that's been sustained since the pandemic. So we needed to come up with a solution to help get people out of the house and socializing. But the program is more than just a chance for seniors to socialize. Specialized menus are created at each participating restaurant to help diners eat healthier and feel better. The way the Dine Out Club works is we partner with local restaurants. Our dietitian works on a menu of items that meet the recommended daily allowance for nutrition, and seniors 60 and older can sign up at no cost and get a Dine Out Club card. Go to one of these participating restaurants, order a nutritious meal, and socialize. Program participants are giving it good reviews. Uh, I can honestly say that me coming out three to five times a week has helped me lose weight because I don't eat the nasty food I used to because it's a, a program that's uh, set up to be a healthy, uh, uh, low carbs, low calories, low everything, low sodium for to help the elderly. So I found that it's better food than what I've been cooking. The program is funded under the federal Older Americans Act nutrition program, state resources, and donations. Besides helping combat loneliness and a poor diet, 
The program also helps participants with fixed incomes stretch a dollar further since it's free of charge. Nice. And that's it for today. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.